This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Two thousand and five, March fourteenth, an unmarked red van left Dublin. It drove down the N4 to Atlone. There were five people in the van a woman and four men. Whatever was in each of their minds that morning, they all had a common objective for that day. They had to go to Atlone, pick up eight people, then they had to take them back to Dublin and be at the airport no later than 11 that night. Of the eight people, there were five males and three females. And of that eight, so the story goes, none knew that the red van was coming for them. The eldest male was Sean. He was big in stature. He was known to his friends as Junior. He insisted on us using what he had adopted as his Irish name, Sean, Sean O'Duncy. And uh, was full of the joy of life, full of bubbles, laughed a lot, was happy in school and was making good progress. Sean was 14 years old. The second oldest male was his 11-year-old brother. Um, Sheehan was a very good worker in class. He was very enthusiastic about his work. He, he got on very well with the boys. He was, he was very bubbly in the class and he tried very hard and um, he was very much into sport. And on a Tuesdays, we go playing Gaelic football and he was really, really good at, at Gaelic football. You know, for a child, he wouldn't have grown up playing it, so he was very, very good. One of the wanted females was Aya, their 17-year-old sister. She was, she was tall. She had a great head of hair. She was very quiet, young. She wasn't, um, she wasn't sporty now or bubbly, that kind of thing. She was a quiet youngster. She worked hard in school. She had, you know, um, and was um, would have been very respectful and a good youngster, you know, a good youngster, you know. Next was a friend of the family, eight-year-old Emmanuel. He was a, a quiet, refined, uh, pleasant, very pleasant, very pleasant little boy. Um, certainly. I didn't know him because of bad behaviour or anything like that. He was he was very well behaved and took good care of his brother also. His little brother, yes. Yes, yes. His little brother was also wanted. So here he is at the end of the row. These are all his little friends and um, I certainly know his teacher loved him as she loved every child in the in the room. Israel was just five years old, the same age as Baloo. And here he is in his next class. This is Baloo in his next class in senior infants. Baby brother to Sean, Shagoon and Daya. All turned out in his, his wine and grey, his t shirt and tie. The final two places were for their mothers. But by the time the red van drove out of Atlone that evening, the five guards from the National Immigration Bureau had only managed to pick up four of the eight. Sitting in the van with them were the two five-year-olds and their mothers. The four others were to miss that night flight to Nigeria. 
all four children were now missing in Athlone. In March 2005, I was a freelance journalist uh, living and working in Athlone, uh, covering the local beat for the national newspapers. I first heard about the deportation from local contacts I have here uh, in Athlone and that there was some uh, annoyance locally over how the deportation took place. That came out very strongly and that may have been a slight watershed in Irish society as well in that, you know, there had been a tendency possibly before that to chronicle these people as numbers almost, you know, that we have so many immigrants this year, so many this, that and the other. But what was going on beneath the surface was the level of integration. These children were getting involved in sport, in music, they were living normal Irish lives effectively and developing very close friendships. And it personalised, I think, in some ways, something that had previously been very bureaucratic. So when the schools and the principals who are respected people in any community generally started speaking about, you know, their, their loss and their, their distaste, you know, I think it made people sit up and realise, hold on, we can't be blasé just because it's non-national children. And I think that's, that was very telling at the time. The six children went to five different schools. There was an air of sadness in the classroom. There was an air of sadness, you know, around the... I suppose just the whole trauma for these two, two little boys. St Paul's National School is found at the bottom of a warren of narrow streets in the old centre of Athlone. Without warning, without, without, without um, preparation, just to be literally snatched snatched from the, the lovely comfort zone they had here. It's a single-storey building near the river, run by Geraldine Regan. The two five-year-olds were in her care. And their little possessions, you know, that are so precious. Two children, their um, um, creative writing copy or their little art folder, all these precious little things that are so memorable and make, have such a huge place in the children's lives and how proud they are of anything they make in art and crafts. And all of those things were there. I'm sure they've mi they missed all that. Sandra Lennon is a fifth class teacher in the Dean Kelly National School. Before he left, Shagoon was in my class, which was fifth class as well at the time. So he was um, 11, I think, before he left. A small school painted bright yellow and surrounded by tall green railings. I wasn't in, in a situation that even before to pack up all the stuff because I, did, I was expecting them in the next day as normal. So, yeah, I remember at the time we had the old desks. We have these desks at the moment. We had the old desks where the books used to go underneath. And I remember having to, to clear out all of those books after um, a couple of weeks. When you hear about these things in the news, it's very hard to relate to it. But when you actually have experienced time with the child and then to actually see it in motion, just as here one day, gone the next. It's um, it's very unfair. There's something wrong for a child to get settled into a country for so many years and then just to be taken. The third school is St Mary's National School, but Emmanuel was only there for seven months. It was really Geraldine Regan in St Paul's who knew him very well. He had spent the previous three years going to school there. He must have felt very alone. He must have... Um, the, the, not knowing what his fate was. I'm sure he didn't understand how, why he was left. Can a child of eight comprehend that mummy goes and his brother goes and he's left? 
I'm sure uh, all of these thoughts were going through his mind. I cannot understand how they would go undetected or what kind of life they're having if they're kept under cover and if uh, or what the advantage would be if they're not attending school or and I'm sure the emotional trauma of all of that is very, very big for a, a youngster to carry. The Shannon River cuts at Lonan too. The final two schools, which are the secondary schools, where the two oldest children went to, are out towards the Dublin side of Athlone. I would often think about her um, and hope that she's well and hope that she's safe. Our Ladies Bower Secondary School is on Retreat Road. For the last 15 years, Sister Denise O'Brien has been running this school and she would have been Aya's head nun. She um, can't surface in Ireland, she can't finish her education, she can't get a job, she can't um, be sick, she can't need a hospital because she's no PPS number and everybody is tagged in Ireland now with a PPS number. What can I say except that, you know, she was part of our school and she was just gone, you know. And just across the road is the fifth and final school, the Athlone Community College. This boy, Sean O'Duncey, would have come to us in September 2003. He would have been one of 150 first years that started at that time. 14-year-old Sean went to school here. I'm principal of Athlone Community College, Val O'Connor. It's an 800-plus school, mixed school boys and girls. He liked, he liked to be involved in messing and teasing. But on the corridor, he had a big presence, both physically and smiling and laughing. And he wasn't a sports person as such. I, I can't recall him playing any sports in our school. But he was, he was a happy boy at 14 years of age. Happy boy. He was a pupil at Athlone Community College right up to 3.35pm on that Monday, the 14th of March 2005. When after that, he, along with his siblings and eight-year-old Emmanuel, literally disappeared from everybody's sight. The Aduncey children weren't to blame for the fact that their parents relocated to this country and they were doing what was right, they were involved in the educational system. So it's very sad to think that that was as a result of them disappearing or whatever that they've lost that great chance. And it's strange that we've never, never had any contact with Sean since, you know, and so many of the young people who came at the time from Africa have settled in so well and are sitting there, have sat there leaving cert or are sitting there leaving cert this year. You say the word disappeared, does it sound odd? It does sound odd because it's, it's the only time we've had that experience in all my years as a school principal. From the day he left that evening, he has really disappeared off the face of the earth. There hasn't been any contact. I was um, talking at different stages afterwards with many people who were advocates of the family and trying to help them but they weren't able to give us any information of where Sean was. They probably knew, but obviously they had to be very careful because the authorities were actively seeking out those children. Did he ever say anything to you um, about he was worried that he might be deported? Or? No, he never mentioned that at all. Can I always kept uh, something like that private or never mentioned to anybody. David's in fifth class at the Athlone Community College. He was good friends with Sean. They came from primary school together. They were neighbours and in the evening they played football together or PlayStation. From like from the whole like whole school we were the two like Africans, like we kinda like hang out with each other a bit like Can you try and imagine or think like... scared, frightened, don't know what to do, don't know where to go, where safe. 
because you would have remembered him as good crack, one like like to be out and about with people, enjoying school, enjoying friends, enjoying music. Mm. And now he's sort of what's he sort doing? of like Anne Frank or something like that. Can't come out. It's he can't come out like, but he's not scared of death. He's scared of getting sent back. So when did you hear about it? Heard about when I came home from school actually, because everyone was saying the guards were looking for him and all that, uh, picking them up and bringing them in the van, like getting his sister, getting his brothers, and all, getting his like little brother, like picking them up one by one. It was unusual um, in that it wasn't the usual suspects, for the want of a better phrase, who were running this campaign. It, it sprung out of nowhere, really, and an ad hoc alliance of people got together. Uh, and that was where people like Frank and Emily Young and others as well who got involved in the campaign, that's where they started from. And I, I felt that they were quite legitimate and well-motivated in what they did, that they, you know, they, by their nature, they're not political activists. They're not people who are going to be uh, out protesting and striking and raising, raising a rumpus. And they seemed to, and they had no agenda because uh, almost invariably when the campaign subsided, these people lapsed back into relative anonymity again. And I recall at one occasion in the middle of it, talking to Frank Young, who's a man I would know quite a long while before that. Uh, and he was making the point that they were getting phone calls and getting people turning up to meetings that they'd never met before, uh, local people who worked in the bank or worked as teachers. Uh, but that's where, the, that's where they, their uh, distaste came from, and that's where the momentum for the campaign came from as well. You come from Dublin, you go through the main roundabout, you take the entrance into Athlone, you then come to a smaller roundabout. On the right-hand side is the Athlone Institute of Technology. On the left-hand side is the Willow Park and Meadowbrook Estates. And what happened in this estate on the 14th of March was the first thing that bothered people in Athlone. We're driving into Willow Park now. But within Willow Park then, we'll be driving around to Thornbury. Into Thornbury Drive. So it's like estates within estates. Exactly. Frank Young is over 60 with a shock of white hair. So we're still in Willow Park as we go along here. He's a retired farmer and was an advisor to Chagask. So you can see there, two young immigrants. He drives an old car, wears a navy jacket and always has a cigarette. Well, the women were four years in at Lone when, at the time of their deportation, so I would have known them for a considerable length of time from the time that they arrived in at Lone. Your wife taught them, was it? Uh, that's correct. Yeah, they were attending the Vitas uh, school, and Yabo and Liz were doing, among other subjects, were studying computers. So that's where my wife Emily got to know Yabo and Liz, and she built up a very strong friendship with them and that's how I got to know them so we've been visiting their home here in Tombray Drive and they had been up with us as well. They had deportation orders issued? They had, they had deportation orders. When they were requested to attend at the Garda Barracks in Athlone on the 14th of March 2005 they felt that this was just a routine check to see that they were there and on that day all their children were at school and they were very, in fact, they, I was talking to them a few days before that when they were notified to attend and they said, we have good news. All we have to do now is just 
attend the Garda Barracks in Atlone at 2 o'clock on Monday the 14th of March. Were you at Thornbury Drive at all? No, I wasn't in Thornbury Drive at all. No, I was doing other work that day, but I was... I rang on a number of occasions during that day to see how they got on. Make contact with them until about half eleven on that night, and at that stage they were at the airport. But there's plenty who say that they saw exactly what went on in Thornbury Drive. Ah, Thornbury Drive was packed up. Not one person packed. Packed. Thornbury Drive was packed up as if it was a market square. From around quarter past two, the junior and senior infants from the local schools all head home. It should have been business as usual then, a normal enough day for people who live under deportation orders, but it wasn't. Um, my name is Rosalind Agbonlaho. I lived in 130 Middlebrook then. When the incident happened, I think it's about quarter past two in the afternoon when the kids are back from school. At two o'clock when the mothers went to the Garda station, the red van was waiting for them. By quarter past two, the five-year-old school bus had pulled into Thornbury Drive. By then, the van, with the mothers inside, had made their way over and was now parked outside Elizabeth's house. I think when uh, Israel was crying, that telling mommy, what is this, what is this, what is all about? He was still with the uniform. With the uniform. They don't even eat food. They didn't give them food because they are just coming back from school. They about hold uh, Israel in a hand. Get up, you have to go, get up, stand up, get up. I was, yeah, this, this, these are crazy. So they were, were they sitting on the ground? Yes. Refusing to move? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like almost like a protest? Yes. Did your son miss Emmanuel afterwards or what you said? Yes. My son called me, saying, mean that I'm not going to see Emmanuel and Israel and Bulu anymore. I said, of course, you're going to see them. They're going to, they're going to bring them back. That's what we do is rally. Say, bring them back, stop deportation. Say, we need black and white. Say, bring them back, stop deportation. Bring them back, stop deportation. Black and white, bring them back. I just got a, another, I mean, I'll send it on to you, but another uh, statement from the Department of Justice saying that the women actively avoided, uh, you know, deportation. That's, that's their line, the Department of Justice, that the GNIB made every effort to keep their family together, but that they separated the children, you know, to avoid deportation, and that the children are, are now in hiding, and they are... Well, all the children were at school that day, and I think if, if the parents wanted to, felt were going to be deported and didn't want their children to be deported, well, surely at that stage they would have had their kids in hiding straight away if that were to be the case. Around 3.20 they left and after four, quarter past four, they came back again, hoping that the children would be back home then, but they didn't see them. So it was around 20 past three, the five immigration police, the local Bangarda, the two mothers and the two five-year-olds all pulled off in the vehicles and drove down to Retreat Road. What happened during that next segment of time was to be a major factor in mobilising the town. Whether the events of that next 45 minutes, though, directly contributed to the children's disappearance is perhaps a little bit more ambiguous. Their first stop was at Lone Community College. The school finishes at 3.35, and I'd say about 10, 15 minutes later, the people came looking for Seanadunsey. 
and Sean, like every other boy and girl, the minute Bell goes out and home or wherever they go. It takes six minutes to drive from Thornbury to the school, but it takes about 25 minutes to walk from Atlone Community College to Thornbury Drive. Sean left at 3.35pm. The GNIB arrived to the school at 3.50. It is quite possible that the van would have passed him as he walked home. They didn't give any information except that they were looking to speak with Sean at Dunsey. There was at least two of them there and uh, my secretary would have informed them that school had finished and Sean had left. She had checked with me if he had left and we had paged him and he had left the building. The next step was Aya School, Our Lady's Bower, which was across the road. The Gardaí arrived um, with the mother of the student concerned, um, I suppose about four o'clock, as I remember it, and um, at that time, school closes at half past three. Um, the study starts at a quarter to four, and as it happened, um, Noel Casey, deputy principal, was um, taking the study that evening. Well, I won't forget it for a long time, and it, it was a very... Well, it was a shocking thing, because it, it, it came out of the blue. They came through the door, they went into what we would have called the purple area, and um, proceeded to ask um, for the student concerned, with the mother of the student concerned held in as restraining manner. Um, and that's what concerned us, really, that this could actually... Um, happened within the school, really, you know, without any proper procedures in place. If they had called the school beforehand and asked to speak to the vice-principal, Noel Casey, the GNIB would have realised that Aya had left suddenly, because by the time they turned up, she had been gone for almost an hour. I had spoken to Aya. She came in to tell me that she heard, um, through the grapevine, for want of a better way to describe it, that there were um, movements by the Gardaí around the family home and she wanted to know what to do and um, I suggested that she go home. She seems to have got word, she was 50 at the time, she seems to have got word that um, the guards were in, down at her home and um, that was about three o'clock as I remember it. So it's hard to know whether she got the message or um, directly or whether it came through somebody else but she got the message. And that was it. We haven't seen her since. Seen her or heard from her since. She left the school at five past three. It was a 25 minute walk back home. She would have been there at 3.30. Again, could they have passed each other by in the street, the van and the girl? Or did Aya already know not to go home? At any rate, Aya was long gone, but the GNIB had just arrived. There was a, I suppose, a feeling of um, I don't want to use the wrong word. <laughs> we did, we did. It, it seemed like that they were um, laying siege to the building. My, my, my perception, my perception that it was the immigrants, who, the African students who were asked, which, um, you know, because they would be expected to know, you know, which in its sense, and, and they were quite frightened. That was a very frightening experience for them because some of them were waiting for papers at that time, you know. And when you say the woman was in a... She was being restrained. She was what? Being held. By her wrists? Yes, yes, yes. It, it was a thing that sort of stayed in our memories, really. And remember, Ayo had been part of our school community for a number of years. Um, everybody knew her, you know, and she was uh, very much part of life here. And then to, to, to see the 
um, I suppose the the way in which the state was responding to her was was kind of it was very disconcerting really so we did we complained there was a complaint sitting and um, I approached um, our own organization the JNB and um, I know that that letter went on the Gardaí came down to investigate it you know um, the Gardaí did come down to investigate and consequent on that um, procedures have been changed you would wonder who's looking after them um, who's been caring for them for the last two and a half years what schools have they been going to um, what sort of life are they living they're on the run they're hiding you know alone is not a very big town and I know an awful lot of people in town and I just don't know where those children are I would wonder I don't well, I, I know we did often ask um, some of the other children who would have been friends of hers how she was and where she was um, we never got any answers I don't think I don't think people will give you too many answers to be honest and the immigration was very tall and tall, huge yeah. <laughs> those huge what, big men mm. in her new house Rosaline has her Christmas tree up it's a Friday morning before she goes to work she sits with her friend Gift, talking about the events of that afternoon. But in the evening, when my children go to after school class, as I was picking my child from after school around five, I saw the bus in Gada Station, the same van. So the same color and the same van again came to Willow Park later on uh, that day. What time was the van in Willow Park again? The van should be in Willow Park before six. Well, at that stage, um Yabo and Elizabeth and the two little boys would have been in the van. Yeah, because they didn't allow them to come down at that stage. Did you see them in the van or you couldn't? The van was shaded off. You can't see anybody in the van. It's a closed. I know the van very well. It's a closed van. There's no windows, not even. No. Emmanuel finished his school at three o'clock. Shagan also finished at three. The teachers from both their primary schools have confirmed no, that the Garda National Immigration Bureau didn't come near their school gates. The van didn't come for them, neither, of course, then, did their mothers. The immigration police may have spent the post-school hours circling at Lone, but by six o'clock, all the remaining children had disappeared. I think in the night, I, I heard that they came back, thinking that maybe one of the kids or one of the daughter, that is the daughter, would come back home. But they couldn't find up to now. We don't even know where the children are. We don't even know. I don't believe the children are in Atlanta because if the children are in Atlanta, we must see them. They might go to school. I cannot keep a child for three years or so to not go to school. But they can. People know them very well in Atlanta. Do you understand? With their posters and everything. They might be in Ireland, but not in, I don't think they'll be in Atlanta. Sometimes yeah. it's, it's difficult to get through. Frank takes a scrap of paper out of his jacket pocket. On it is written a long number. The number is dialed. It's Iabo's mobile. Israel's mother... And Emmanuel's mother. Hello. Hello, Emmanuel. This is Hello. Yeah, this is Frank here, Emmanuel. How are you? Fine. Oh, you at school today, Emmanuel? Yeah. And this chat is unusual because Emmanuel, of course, is one of the four children who disappeared yeah. that day and who have never been found by the yeah. Irish authorities. How is Israel? Fine, he's here. And are you glad to be at home, Emmanuel, back with your mum? I'm happy with my mum. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Hello, Yabo. Yabo, 
Three months after he disappeared, Emmanuel, along with the three other children, were on RTE's prime time. Sitting on a sofa, in an anonymous setting, he looked uncomfortably at the camera, a large tear rolled down his cheek. He missed his mother, he said. But no explanation was given for his disappearance or for how he was living or where. Okay. And Manuel just came back this summer, didn't he? Yes, he did. Okay. Why did he come back, Iabo, if he was away for so long? Emmanuel was traumatised. He was really, 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 really sick and there was no other way than to do it and to bring him back. Yes. yes, he was only eight and he was alone and he wasn't going to school. Where was he? Where was he for the two years? I'm really, really, really sorry about that. I don't think I'll be able to discuss that for the um, security reasons of, of my friends who helped me to look after him. Was he in Ireland or, you know, was he safe? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, he was in Ireland. He was in Ireland and he was in Dublin. Ayabo was very reluctant to talk about her son's missing two and a half years. But over the weeks, on the phone, a little more was revealed. And then what happened afterwards, though? How did he end up in Dublin? Um, I don't really know, but I only knew that after about um, some months, I was called because I was really worried and I was concerned about his welfare, his well-being and everything. So I didn't have a number to contact him. They were all the ones calling me, so I couldn't know where exactly. Because in my bid, as a worried and a consigned mother, told me, okay, he's fine. He's not in Acton, but he's in Dublin. And they didn't disclose the exact place where he was in Dublin. And they didn't give me a number where I... Because most times, like, I feel like I want to talk to him. But there was no number for me to be able to talk to him. It is only... I only spoke to him when I'm being called, when they call me. Did you trust the people who are looking after Emmanuel? Hmm, I don't know what to say. I couldn't say I trusted them. I just committed him to the hands of God, and I knew that there's only God that was looking after him. But you say that he, he wasn't going to school. Yeah. My friends that he was staying with, they were worried. They said he was really, really down and like he was having nightmares. He was always screaming that he wants his mom, he wants his mom. And, you know, his health was deteriorating and they couldn't handle it anymore. So they made a focus to me and which they felt that that would be the best thing for him. The way he hardly eats and when he wants to eat, he just picks up the food and... He was saddened always. He was never happy. And then psychologically, he was like, in the middle of the night, he'd wake up and he'd be screaming, I, I want my mom, I want my mom. I, I suppose I was also going to ask you, because I know you became very good friends. Everybody knows you became very good friends with Elizabeth as well. Um, can you yes. tell me how Elizabeth is recently? What, how's she doing? Elizabeth is not, she's not well, she's feeling, feeling so bad. Okay, you mean yeah. she's depressed or upset? Yes, she's very, very depressed and she doesn't want to talk to anybody. She doesn't even want to talk to me. Does she know where the children are? I don't think so. She doesn't know where they are. Are they, would they be in the same place in Dublin that Emmanuel was? No, no, they were separated. 
Can she? But she can get in contact with the children, can she? At the moment, there's no way she's not been able to get any contact. But if maybe if she was able to maybe speak to them, she would have been. I think so. Improve it. But at the moment now, nothing like that. No head, anything. Are you in contact with the children to ensure that they're okay? Can you guarantee their safety? No, I have no no phone number for the children. I'm not in contact with with the children except the mothers over the years. So the only way you know of the children is via the phone calls with the mothers. I know that both mothers and and Diago as well would have been in contact in her case with Emmanuel and that Elizabeth would have been in contact by phone with her children. But if Elizabeth is in a depressed state and she's far away and is there some sort of question mark over whether how, how safe they could be or Well as I've said, I've been reassured by Elizabeth that her family that her children are safe. I think they would be fearful of talking to the documentary because of the fact that they're in hiding. What would you think would be the biggest problem for them? The biggest fear? I think of of being found out where they were and maybe being deported at this stage where there are no proper facilities in Nigeria in the home situation as of now. Elizabeth and Iyabo met Pastor Peter in the asylum unit in Atlone way back in the summer of 2001 when they first came over to Ireland. Together, they set up the Pentecostal church in the town. Everybody wants to talk about Elizabeth and Iyabo, how unfair the deportation was. How cruel to split the family. How nobody knows where the children are, including their mother. And including Pastor Peter. If they know their whereabouts, so that I will know what we can do. Do you get what I'm saying now? But none of them, to be honest with you, none of them. Pastor Peter Abujo insists that none of the church knows where the children are. And the only time he's seen their mothers since they were deported was last summer, when he met them briefly in a hotel lobby in Lagos. Sitting in that lobby, Elizabeth told Peter of a recent phone call she had had with her eldest son, Sean, or Junior, as he used to be known. The oldest boy there said uh, he doesn't want to speak to her mom because uh, he's, he, I think he thought that the mother deliberately abandoned them. Do you know what I'm saying? So the boy is not happy where, according to the mother, that um, how could a mother abandon her children and she went back to Nigeria. What is he doing now? Can you Have you any idea of where he is? And you mean is... the junior and Sam? Yes. I don't, I don't have the idea. I have not been able to... I have not spoke to any of them. Somebody must know where they are. In the church? Somebody, some... Uh, some... Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. If anybody has to know, 
I don't, I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know. Nobody has ever. I think that we, in front of our eyes, you know, non-national communities are forming networks that we do not even understand. Um, I think what around the time the story was heavily in the media, the relationships that build up between the non-national community and local people in Athlone, which were based on, you know, very solid reasons of human, humanitarian reasons, really. I think that was quite interesting at the time, and I suspect some of those relationships still exist. Um, there may have been a kind of coalition of convenience at the time between Irish people and, and Nigerians and other non-nationals. That may well have taken place. The more people I talk to, the more ghostly the children seem. But the next time I meet Frank, he has some news. I was talking to, her, to Elizabeth this morning, and, uh, you know, she's very fearful, but her strong, she's a very strong faith, and she's praying and hoping against hope that eventually they might be allowed to return to here, to Atlone. Well, has, um, has Elizabeth given you an indication of the last time she spoke to the, to the children? Well, I asked her how the children were, and she said that they're good, and that she had been speaking to them. Now, I didn't actually ask her exactly when she was talking to them last. Right. Her great fear is that the location would be identified. But what they have agreed, um, talking to Liz, that they will write a note and give an idea of the experiences that they've had over the last couple of years where they'll tell their own story. So I think that should be acceptable. Now, those letters, I understand, will come next week. And I can guarantee, when I see the letters, if they're authentic, but I can guarantee that they will be. I've no doubt whatsoever on that. And I've no doubt about knowing those kids when they're here in Atlone and knowing their mother so well. There's no way that there'd be a concoction made. So I, I, can, I can reassure you on that. That was on the 23rd of November. Two weeks later, I'm in Frank's house. At Lone Town rests in the distance. The ruins are They're just behind the trees there. You might see them from here. From the large picture windows, the winter sun glints on the swollen bed of the River Shannon. The post for that day has come in, but the letters from the children still haven't arrived. Today is the 7th of December and you spoke to Elizabeth last night, late last night, and she... Said the letters would be on the way at this stage. So I'd expect them to come next week. Other than that, you know, I, I would, I would expect them to come. I was, I, I was, look, walking the corridors this morning, like, you know, looking at the pictures and they can second you on uh, looking at my face, looking at his face like like we both like look real young there and like when the pictures are taken you me thinking, Oh, I'm gonna get deported like but now like you just look at the pictures memories. It's gone, like it's not here anymore. It's now the third Christmas since their disappearance and three of the four children are still living underground. Like you imagine leaving your life in fear, like if he is still in Ireland or is he still going back like if he's still in Ireland, is he doing okay? Yeah, or is, if he's come back, imagine being back in that country, because school, the government's corrupted every place, and the dirt, like, if you haven't got money, there's no survival. Just trying to think of the, the, the endings for Sean. If he's, the best one would be, he's allowed back to Adlone, and all the family are allowed back to Adlone. That's the happy ending. The one in the middle now, if he's in hiding in 
Ireland. He, he avoids Nigeria, but he sort of... Kyle for the rest of his life. Kind of waking up in the morning, staying in the same room, staying in the same... If, he, if you're waking up in the morning, you're staying in the same place. You wake up, stay in the same place. Breakfast, sleep in the same place. Like, it's like being in prison. Like, you can let yourself out, but there's... And then any, like, it's a consequence to it, lifting yourself out, you're going back. Frustration, like. There's still no letter from Sean O'Duncy, his brother or sister. You know, he's getting slagged about that picture today, everyone's looking at it. There's a photo of Sean with his classmates on the corridor of Atlone Community College. Small back then, I was running less size, like, and now... And You'd be one of the tallest now. Yeah, everyone's kind of growing up now, really. His friend David remembers it. And that's you. Yeah. And that's Sean. But when you were all laughing and looking at the pictures this morning. Yeah, I was, I, everyone was looking at that picture, but I was kind of looking at that picture. I was just saying, where is he? So when everyone was... Looking, looking at my at, picture, I was looking at the other picture. You, this were looking, picture. you were looking at Sean? Yeah. And you were wondering... Where is he? And did you say it to anybody? No, I just kind of kept it to myself. 